Welcome to the fourth entry in my Life and Times of Video Games interview series on the people and processes behind games history. This time around, I speak to the man behind the CRPG Addict blog, a fellow who operates under a pseudonym, Chester Bolingbroke, or Chet for short. The CRPG Addict is a blog that attempts to critique and document the entire genre's history in roughly chronological order. It's in 1992 at the time of recording. Now, I've been reading The CRPG Addict on and off for most of its decade-long existence, and I've gained a tremendous amount of insight into the computer role-playing game genre from Chet's deep examinations and reflections of every CRPG released, from the genre's inception in the 1970s right through the 1980s and more recently into the early 90s. I love his efforts to record even the least known most obscure titles, a dedication that extends as far as a number of freeware and shareware games that weren't released in English or that were put out on difficult-to-emulate platforms that require lots of work to run. And in the interview you're about to hear, Jet not only shares some of his expertise with us, but he also discusses how his approach has changed enormously as he's learnt more about the genre's history. And we touch on the CRPG family tree, Jet's favourite below-the-radar titles so far, the merits and failings of a scoring system for comparing games, the value of talking about a tiny niche within a niche in such detail, how he learnt to stop feeling guilty about loving role-playing games, and much more. So without further ado, here's our full discussion, trimmed down and lightly edited to clear out some awkward pauses and idle chatter, and a bit of the umming and ahhing along the way. Enjoy. Before we, we really get deep into it, we, we should talk a bit about um, some of the reasons why you're, you're doing this project. Um, so, like, as a first thing, it would make sense to ask why RPGs and, and why specifically computer RPGs uh, rather than some other genre. Well, I don't have a lot of experience with, with tabletop RPGs to start with, and uh, it, it's always intrigued me. I've played a few sessions here and there, but it takes so much effort to get it together, really, uh, to get the, you know a group of people who have the, the amount of time, and then to get them focused, and then to make any kind of progress. Uh, it, it's, I mean, if you think of a game of Monopoly as being, you know, long and complex and frustrating by the end, certainly a, a typical RPG session, unless you've got a very good moderator, uh, just completely spirals out of control, much worse than uh, a bounded game like, like Monopoly. So I know, I'm sure there's some excellent you know, tabletop RPG sessions, but for the re- those reasons, I just was never attracted to that as a as a genre as for why computer rpgs i just think they they strike a pretty good balance of the things that i like i like tactical combat uh but i don't like when it gets too complex like like many st- strategy games or uh typically do and you know i, I don't want to be planning you know entire campaigns and micromanaging a ton of different numbers but i do like the statistics and i li- and i like the, seeing those statistics increase with the um, acquisition of goods with the building of the character. Uh, so the RPG strikes me as sort of a good halfway point, I suppose, between a purely action game that has none of that and, say, a strategy game that is is largely that. But I also like the idea of character identification and, and character growth. And I think, you know, very early on, I was exposed to Ultima Four, uh, which has a, a main quest for the character 
that that really is all about good and evil, about about building virtue in yourself. And I think I internalized that concept uh, of character identification very early on because of that game. It's rare to find a game that offers that uh, level of of role playing even today. But I'm always looking for it, and I, I think that's partly what made the RPG genre so attractive. Hmm. That reminds me that uh, in the early days, you, well, right at the beginning, I think, uh, you, you were looking at some roguelike games, like you started with yeah. Rogue, and that was a bit of a culture shock for you, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, I had gone back. Uh, that was early in the in the project when I decided that I'd play every role playing game that ever existed. And of course, uh, now I know through my the list that I've compiled, Rogue wasn't the second one. But with the list that I have had at the time, Rogue was the second game that I, I could play anyway. And yeah, I had never been exposed to the rogue like genre before, so uh, that was a real uh, eye opener. It was obviously very frustrating with the idea of permadeath and yet i still forced myself through it played it honestly and won after about 80 hours i think on my <laughs> 30th character or something like that uh that i did i did that with nethack too and it took me a, a lot longer uh to to finally win that game honestly but i don't do that so much anymore you know I, i'll take i'll cheat i'll take backups i i don't have that kind of patience and it, it amazes me that i ever did <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was funny. It nearly ended my project, the, the very second game that I played, because I, I was wondering if I would ever win. Uh, I didn't, at the time, when I finished that Rogue, I, did, I didn't think that I really particularly loved roguelikes, but I, I really have developed quite a fondness for them uh, over time. And they do a lot with logistics, a lot with uh, character development, a lot with the integration of different objects that know... A graphic oriented game has even today really really does mm, yeah it's a, it's a fascinating genre i did a yeah. a piece for ars technica a little while ago trying to uh fairly quickly and it was like three or four thousand words uh fly through the whole history of roguelikes and and the the landmark games in there and i, I discovered a lot uh, in the process of writing that about how inventive the genre is yeah it's one of those things that's almost impossible to describe to somebody until they've played it, uh, the appeal of that sort of game. I'm glad I got to experience that. Hmm. Uh, so has, has your attraction to computer role-playing games changed much as you've delved deeper into their history? I think a little bit. I I used to say things like no good game is ever too long for instance and now i i've changed my opinion on that <laughs> i don't want to i don't want a game that that lasts more than than 40 hours or so anymore but th that of course is a, a side effect of blogging about them too and, and trying to keep my my blog moving forward and, and not get mired too much but i um i yeah just in general even, even if i wasn't blogging i don't think i would have as much patience for very long games as i did in the past uh, I think that my attitude towards graphics and the importance of graphics uh, evolved a bit uh, over the t uh, time that I was playing. I, I don't think they're quite as important to me as they used to be. Um, and just, I realized that the entire concept of, of playing a role in a role-playing game, being able to make meaningful choices, having meaningful conversations with NPCs, these are very contemporary 
attitudes as to what role-playing games are. And even today, they only exist in a small percentage of the RPGs that are being created. So I had to learn to value other things, I guess I have to say, about the, the genre, because I found out that, that those things aren't really all that common in, in RPGs. Hmm. And, and that's a, a good point at which to, to go into the fact that you have rules that, that you're, you follow yeah. in doing your blog, and those rules aren't exactly what they were at the beginning. No, they... they yeah, they've morphed quite a bit. Well, I, I was pretty dumb when I first started. I was trying to, I was trying to keep the, the list manageable, and I, I've never been. I, I, I that's a. I was going to say I've never been very technically proficient, but that's that's not really true. I work in a in a very technical field, but it's just that area of technology, I guess, is something that hasn't. Uh, it hasn't been in my history, so I learned how to use DOSBox and. You know, that was enough at the time. And I thought, I'm comfortable with this. I only want to do this. I don't want to muck around with, with other emulators and other systems. I don't know why I was so resistant to it, to be honest. If, you, if somebody had just showed me, look, this is, a, this is Vice and it emulates the Commodore 64 and look how easy it is, uh, there would have been no argument. I would have immediately said, oh, great, I'll use this for practically every game that had a C64 release because it turns out to be even easier to use than DOSBox. But for some reason at the time, I was just locked into that idea. And so I said, I'm only going to do things that had a, a DOS or Windows, ultimately a Windows release. A few of the other rules I said early on were that I had to play for at least six hours so that I wouldn't be quick to dismiss a game and just write a you know quick description of it and not really get into it. Uh, and then I set some pretty strict rules about cheating. I said I couldn't use walkthroughs. I couldn't use any hints. And the the DOS one is the one that really has changed the most, I suppose. About three years into it, I realized how dumb it was. I realized that I was missing out. Even the games that had a DOS release, they were rarely the best uh, version of the game until the late 1980s and into the 1990s. So I played the worst version of Fantasy, the worst version of Ultima, because I was insisting on uh, on adhering to the DOS-only rule. So that changed. Uh, and then ultimately I said, look, my list encompasses everything that has been released for any personal computing platform, even to take on foreign games as long as I could type the dialogue into a translator. I, I couldn't, still couldn't play Japanese games, and that's still a barrier. Uh, you know, the, to translate that text, the, the technology is developing, but it's still not quite there that you can do it w with a lot of facility. And of course, the the translation itself is a lot, um, there are a lot more nuances with, with, say, Japanese than there are with French or, or German. But mm. I did the best. I, I would try to go as expansive as I could. I said, I'll play anything that, that I can play, that I can find the emulator for, uh, because I was realized how much I was missing out on some really interesting stuff from other countries and definitely from other systems. The other rules haven't changed a whole lot. In fact, the six-hour rule is something that never really became a problem. Um, if anything, I have not invoked it as often as I should have. I forced myself <laughs> to finish till the bitter end far too many games rather than saying, I've given it the six hours, and I think that I've experienced enough of it. Uh, my win percentage is about 85%, I think, these days. And, you know, it really, for the sake of just moving on, uh, ought to be around more like 50%, maybe 60%. So I, I should say, you know, I should lemon law more games than I do. But uh, so that's not a big thing. I have relaxed the whole, you know, no cheating 
a bit. It, very often I'll get to a point where I am going to quit. Uh, I, I just, I'm tired of it. It's boring, whatever. And so I think, all right, well, I might as well then check a walkthrough or do a little hex editing just so I can document the rest of the game, show the ending screens and, you know, and finish the story, even if I personally didn't finish the full challenge. And I think my readers appreciate that. They'd rather see me do that, I think, than to, than to quit and maintain my integrity, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's also important from a, a, a historical perspective, because some of these games, you are really the only person writing about them. Yes. Yeah, it's always fun when it, when I find a game that maybe, you know, somebody's put 15 seconds of gameplay on YouTube or something, but nobody's really documented it all the way through. And we found some interesting things. I mean, just recently, uh, Dungeons of Avalon 2, there was, it was a shareware game. Not shareware, a disc magazine game, rather, right. uh, released for, for the um, Amiga. And it is completely unwinnable. Uh, and I got as far as I could, and then one of my commenters took apart the code and found the point that it was flawed. So uh, the, the creator had accidentally stuck an unopenable door in the middle of a corridor when probably a <laughs> trap was meant. And so it's probable that in the entire history of this game, nobody has ever uh, won or, or seen a winning screen unless they took the time to hack it the way that, that he did. And so I was glad I was able to you know, bring that to a conclusion. And you've, you've got, on, on that note, you've got some really amazing commenters. Like some of these people oh, are incredible. Yeah. In incredibly knowledgeable and they put so much time and effort into uh, helping you on your journey. And, uh, yeah. and oh, Absolutely. They're co-bloggers, co I say. You know, the, and, you know, they don't let me get away with anything. If, you know, if I, if I try to, uh, to, like, to make a game just sort of go away because I really don't want to play it, there's like 50 of them pouncing on me. Hey, where did that game go? <laughs> and I, you know, I can't get away with that. I, I can't. I can't get away with with anything. They keep me honest, but but they also, if I if I say something wrong, if I miss a fact about the history of a game that's out there, they'll find it uh, and they'll include it. And if I if I get stuck, uh, somebody will come along and find a way to get me unstuck. They're they're really fantastic. Hmm. Now, another key structural element to the way you are approaching this is you've got your Gimlet rating system. Uh, yeah. So, first, can you explain for everyone, anyone who hasn't read your blog what that is? Well, I was trying to find a way to quantify my enjoyment of games. I'm a very data-driven person in general. I work a lot with data in my, my real job, and I, I wanted to, to rate uh, each of the games. I didn't want to just choose something arbitrary, just like a one to 10 scale or something. Although sometimes I wish that I had gone that route. So I, I identified something like 10 categories of things that I thought I valued equally in, in role-playing games. And then I thought I'd, I'd choose a score from one to 10 in each of those categories, add them up, and then you have a hundred point scale. And it, it's caused people a lot of angst over the years because people are used to seeing magazine reviews where 80 is bad, you know, a uh, magazine is, <laughs> that dates me, obviously, <laughs> <You're> online, <laughs> whatever. it doesn't matter, but reviews of, you know, of any sort, where, where if it gets a B, it's, it's a really bad game, you know, you, you need at least 95 to be considered a, a very good game, 90 is kind of iffy, they're used to that kind of inflation, and my, the Gimlet scale doesn't do any of that, it, um, it leaves lots of room, uh, deliberately leaves lots of room at the top, 
for improvement. Uh, I designed it in such a way so that I could compare games across years too. So a game that might have been excellent for 1984 uh, might not be you know so wonderful today in comparison to, to what's out there now. And I wanted to be able to put those two side by side with their numeric score and say and still have a valid result uh, and not not give the 84 game more points just because it was good for its era. So people get a little bit shocked when I take a game that I th- even I think is very good and it ends up rating, say, a 38 or a 42 on the scale. And they, they think it's horrible. I mean, that would be failing if that was a score you know, in college or something like that. But I don't intend it that way. Uh, you have to judge the scores relative to other games. And in my scale, a 50 is a very, very good game and a 60 is a, an absolutely excellent one. And I don't think I've ever rated anything higher than a 65 so far. So I, I left it a lot of room for the the genre to grow. Uh, that said, there are times that I think that it's I, it needs a lot of improvement, I suppose. I, <laughs> I can't say that I've ever rated a game and then looked at the final score and said, you know what, this is completely unrepresentative of how I feel about this game's quality. I, I enjoyed it a lot more or a lot less than this score is, is coming up. So f- that's the only reason I've really stuck with it. It seems to self-validate relatively well. But... Uh, I get into so many arguments with people about uh, different scores and different categories or total scores. And sometimes I feel like it's not worth it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it is very valuable. I think to have that ability to compare the relative merits of the games uh, fairly quickly. And I keep trying to stress to people, quantitative doesn't mean objective. Yeah. <laughs> it's, still an obje- it's still a subjective scale based on what I could prize about the games and the elements that I look for in, in a good RPG. Yeah, really, if, if you want objective, you'd need it to have a panel of a thousand people yeah, or something all, you, yeah. all, all doing their ratings. And <laughs> you, then you, you have see to wire the people's heads to, to actually you know, measure the you know, pleasure centers of their brain or something. <laughs> I don't <laughs> But... Uh, in the process of doing that, you have uh, uncovered some uh, sort of uh, hidden gems. Uh, you, you found you've just you've identified some games that were below the radar and are really really good. Uh, like Omega is one that comes to my mind because I did yeah. that roguelike history, and that's a wonderful game. It's really yeah, delightful. It's a- uh, incredible, yeah. The the, the size of it, the uh, number of different paths you can take in, and, and that's that's an amazing game. I agree. Yeah, and uh, can, can you tell us uh, what are your favorites uh, among these uh, these hidden gems that you've played over the years? Well, I'll tell you, a lot of them don't, with the exception of say the Dark Heart of Ukrul, which uh, was a very early one that I played and and had no uh, knowledge of ahead of time, and nobody had, you know, even ahead of time warned me, or not warned me, but <laughs> alerted me, I suppose, that, uh, you know, a great game is, is coming up. They usually do, you know, they usually talk to it to death before I actually start playing. That was one that just came out of nowhere, and I and I really loved. Uh, and it rated very, very high. But most of the time, well, what I would consider a hidden gem doesn't uh, rate particularly high. It just rates a lot better. Mm-hmm. than you would expect given its its pedigree or uh, maybe you know the way the initial opening screen or something uh struck you and a lot of them therefore have been shareware games uh, mm-hmm. or, or freeware games 
that were developed independently at the time and managed to do something, you know, that the, the commercial games weren't doing. Roguelikes, of course, being primary, I suppose, in that uh, in that list. But I, I'm struggling with the name of one that I played uh, within the last year, and it was based on on Wizardry. And usually when you see a, a shareware game based on Ultima or Wizardry uh, or Bard's Tale or one of the other big ones, they they do worse, obviously, than the, than the commercial game. Even if they were developed seven or eight years later, they don't st- have the same magic, they don't have the same mechanics as the game that was developed by a commercial company. But this one actually went well beyond uh, its source, and it had some really interesting innovations, and it's completely... Uh, I'm blanking on the name. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to dig it up later on. But uh, you could you could change character classes at any time, including going back to the beginning of your own class. Uh, there, there were some more interesting puzzles in the dungeons. There were uh, several different dungeons to explore. And when I got done with it, I thought that they actually outdid the game that they, they based it on. Granted, it was like nine years later, but it was still something that uh, more than I ex- had grown to expect from a shareware developer. Um, what are some other ones that really jumped out? Uh, Disciples of Steel. Uh, that that was a game that I hadn't heard much about ahead of time and came to really, really love. It was a one-off game by a Texas company that was heavily influenced by uh, Wizard's Crown, the, the uh, SSI game from 1985. Uh, Disciples of Steel came out in 1991, and it it was just fantastic in its ambition. It had a whole strategy game, half of it that you didn't even have to explore if you didn't want to, uh, but could. It had uh, multiple threaded quests from different uh, uh, kings around the, the different land, a very complex plot, and extremely tactical uh, combat. I really, really came to love that game, and I've hardly ever seen anything written about it anywhere else. I... Darklands was another one that I, it, it wasn't hidden to everybody else. It was hidden to me, but I had never <laughs> played it. And I, I was really glad that I did Starflight, of course. I mean, everybody, a lot of people know about Starflight, but uh, I hadn't played it. And so I was very glad that I did. But you're, you're going to see a lot if you look at my my sheet of rankings that are in, say, the 30 to 40 range, that which doesn't sound great. But when you look at it, where they came from and, you know, they were programmed by an 18-year-old kid in Indiana or something, uh, then they really jump up to out at you and say, and you think, wow, this was a pretty good achievement. You mentioning Starflight uh, got me thinking about how um, rare it is to see a, an RPG that, uh, certainly in the computer RPG world, that is uh, not fantasy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is rare. And I have a bias, I think, towards fantasy. I, I think that if the you know, the mechanics are otherwise the same. I would prefer a fantasy game. Uh, we see that in, say, the the Buck Rogers uh, games, which are based on the Gold Box engine. But I much prefer the fantasy games uh, using that engine. But when a, when a game is is really good sci-fi, I'm certainly glad to acknowledge it. And and Starflight is really pretty special. Mm. And uh, your your highest rated games. Uh, probably unsurprisingly, uh, include a lot of Ultima, Ultima 5, yeah. 6, 4, uh, Ultima Underworld, they're all in there, and you're only at 92 or 93 
at the moment. So <laughs> potentially there'll be more. So, well, not, not many, many Ultimas left that are going to be high, high on the list. I can. It's a decline of it. I haven't played eight or nine, but um, I, I don't mean just on my blog. I've never played them. But when I do get to them, I don't, based on what people tell me, I don't expect them to rocket to the top of the list. <laughs> so for, for anyone who doesn't know much about Ultimax, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who have heard of Ultima. They know it's a big deal, but they don't really know anything about it. Can you tell us why they're special? Well, I, I think it has a lot to do with the creator, uh, Richard Garriott. I have never spoken to him. I've, I've interviewed a lot of developers, but I've never spoken to him. But I think that uh, more than most other game developers of the time, he had a, a real vision of what he wanted to accomplish with his games. He wanted them to do meaningful world building and have meaningful plots and, and meaningful quests and he developed a team about him that shared that same vision, I think. And they just, um, I don't know why so many other developers at the time uh, felt they had to simply recycle the same old, there's an evil wizard some, you know, that came out of nowhere and you've got to defeat him, that, that type of, of plot. Maybe they thought game players didn't much care about plot, they only cared about gameplay and, and mechanics and so forth. But uh, Origin always really uh, did a great job. Well, they did a, a more thorough job anyway, uh, <laughs> building their game worlds and giving the the character a, a reason to be there. And of course, then you have Ultima Four, which is just an incredibly special game in, in the history of, of the genre. I, I talked about it earlier, but anybody who's never played it really ought to give it a try. Uh, it is even to, even today. I don't know that there's ever been a more original plot than it offered. Where your goal is not to defeat some big enemy, you know, it's not to get rich. It's to become an exemplar of virtue by going around the kingdom and and doing good deeds. And it's tra it's like literally tracking your. Uh, your score in how you how honest you are with people and how uh, charitable you are with people and uh, it really just completely turned around i i think in it definitely when i first played it my idea of what it meant to role play and what a role playing game should could be i don't think they ever did a plot as original as ultima 4 again but they certainly kept some of that same spirit in the next few games and um there just isn't another franchise out there at the time that tried harder to push the envelope mechanically. Uh, we see with, uh, with six and seven, well, actually five, six, and seven, just a lot of fun things you can do in the environment that you can't do in any other title. You know, you can destroy furniture, you can bake bread, you can, you know, use a bucket on a well and get a, and get a pail of water and then use the water on some flour to create dough. You know, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of silly. You don't really need to do it. Uh, in the context of the game, but it's still uh, a lot of fun to to have all of those options. And of course, they're open world. From from the beginning, they've been open world games, uh, and that's something that we a lot of people you know like today. When say the Elder Scrolls series or the the Fallout series, the ability to just sort of explore and see what happens when you do. So uh, for all those reasons, you know, uh, there even more the detailed dialogue with NPCs and reasonably good combat. Uh, it's not some of the best of the of the genre, but pretty good. Uh, those those titles have tend 
to go to the top of the list. And it's notable that one one of my highest rated games is Underworld. I mean, that basically for for ten years, the there was nobody else out there in top down iconographic gameplay. There were a lot of people cloning Ultimas, uh, and it's always obvious when they, they did, but not anybody really well competing with Origin and Ultima for that t- that type of mechanic. And then in Ultima Underworld, they come around and suddenly they dominate the the first person uh, dungeon crawler too. Uh, now Origin didn't you know, write that one, but it was it was people who had had affiliation with Origin, and Origin published it, of course. And so it's amazing that they, for year, you know, a decade they've dominated the top-down iconographic game, and suddenly they just decide, hey, we're going to show people how it's done uh, in a first-person dungeon crawler too. No more tiles, no more uh, incremental movement, no more only being able to see you know directly in, in front of you. You're going to be able to look up, around, move uh, continuously, and and they came up with something uh, amazing that nobody had ever seen before, and that really is the history of that company. Mm. And what, beyond the Ultima series, uh, have you found to be the most influential game so far? Well, influential, that's interesting. Uh, Enjoyable and influential are are, are two different things. Yeah, exactly. Well, obviously, the the, the SSI Gold Box games had a a, a reasonable amount of influence. They were the first attempts to bring actual Dungeons & Dragons-style uh, gameplay to to the computer with an actual license from uh, from TSR, and they did a fantastic job. Uh, there's nothing better than the original Pool of Radiance for the variety of encounters that you experience uh, in the gameplay, meaningful role playing choices uh, that you can make um, th- throughout the the game, and so that always that rates very very high. And obviously the the sort of the the wizard the line that started not with wizardry but it became most well known with wizardry still has a lot of impact on gameplay i think and uh, you know that spawned the bard's tale it spawned the might and magic series and basically every first person dungeon crawler with tiled movement can trace its lineage back to wizardry but wizardry wasn't the beginning of course uh wizardry itself was based upon a game designed for the Plato educational system, mm-hmm. and a lot has been written about those Plato games, but I still don't uh, think that they get enough credit for how much they influenced the next fifteen or twenty years of of commercial games. Yeah, the the amazing games for for the time, the the Plato games, uh, the, and a lot of it probably does come down to the the technology of the Plato, where it's this. Uh, this graphical system uh, you can do it, it effectively supports real time chat. Yeah. Uh, it's it's networked, so you can have multiplayer. Exactly. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, those those games were uh, the first MMORPGs really uh, played in the 1970s at different universities across the country. But yeah, obviously, the system was you know more capable than what a microcomputer could do at the time, and so right away they had that advantage. But in attempting to adapt them to the microcomputer, uh, entire lineages were born. Wizardry is one of them. But for instance, I don't think a lot of people realize that the uh, the author of Alternate Reality, uh, the the city, and then the he he didn't write the second one, but it was based on on the city. Uh, he was exposed to Plato, and he was trying to model, I think, uh, uh, Avatar basically 
in a, in a microcomputer environment. And that alternate reality became very influential as the first sort of survivalist game, the first game where you really had to to pay attention to food and water and, and hot and cold and, and disease and so forth. And, and those are elements that, that crept into a lot of later games. Uh, I still think, although I haven't been able to establish one definitively, that there's a tie between the Plato D&D games and, and roguelikes. I, I don't, I've never seen any history of the development of Rogue uh, that indicated that Michael Toy or any of his co-authors had played any of the Plato games, but there are so many similarities in there that, and Plato was available, say, at Caltech. I don't know what other universities in California where the Rogue developers were. Uh, I think that there must have been some sort of transmission between the, t- the two there. Uh, and then beyond that, you, of course, the Wizardry line, but then you have the whole D&D line uh, that includes Telengard. And, and the Daniel Lawrence titles, there's five or six other independent titles that were developed or developed would be charitable, plagiarized, <laughs> would be the uncharitable way to say it, directly from their Plato uh, antecedents. Um, we owe you know, a lot more to that that series of eight games created in the 1970s than I think most people realize. And you can pretty much say that for, for Plato in general, uh, it it is so important and influential in computer and games history and people don't realize because it was kind of this silo unto itself. But what's great is anybody can play them now. You know, you just need to yeah. get a, a cyber one account and, um, and sign up and they're all there for you to, to check out. And, and some of them are still an awful lot of fun. I just had a great time last year with Camelot, which was a, the last uh, major RPG developed, um, uh, under Plato, and it, it really offers some exciting gameplay, a lot of tactical decision making. Uh, it has a, a path for thievery and and for magic that a lot of games at the time didn't they didn't treat equally to fighting, say, and and Camelot does. So, uh, yeah, anybody who who takes the time to to get a Cyber One account and play a few of those games is gonna, I think, find it well spent. Yeah, I, I agree. I I had a lot of fun over. Uh, uh... <laughs> very long period of time uh, playing through a bunch of Play-Doh games. And it, it's not just RPGs uh, for anyone right, listening. Yeah. It's, it's not just RPGs. You've got flight simulators. Yeah, you, you, can, you can play all... You, I mean, you can run all of the educational lessons from the time, yeah. too. It's great that they've preserved that. Yeah. yeah. I remember playing some ant thing that was that I thought was kind of fun. And, <laughs> and uh Air Fight is a is a wonderful game. I did an episode yeah. of my podcast on Air Fight, one of the world's first flight combat simulators. I think it's a version of Space War yeah. uh, and um, Star Trek, very very early games that started earlier than Plato even. Yeah, and there's um, uh, Empire, which is yeah, uh, right. really influential. That there are two games called Empire that were very influential, but the Plato one. Uh, his is great and it has like four or five different versions which are all interesting in their own right and the other one you're talking about the rpg that serious or yeah yeah okay so i guess moving on you have talked a bit on the blog about engaging critically with art and, and you specifically uh, covered this even in a, a post last year, I think it was, uh, when you were reflecting on your 10 years of doing this stuff and thinking about how we need to 
dissect art on different levels, discuss it, think about it. And um, I really liked the idea that, that you put forth there about uh, how that is critical. And uh, you used a, a phrase like it's, uh, you, you're dedicating this, this blog to something that is so unnecessary. It's, it's so ultimately trivial, but it, it's valuable to, to do this immensely detailed chronicle of its history. And, yeah. uh, and, and I would just be interested in hearing you expand a bit more on that. I, I could, you know, I think I might probably say a lot of things that, that most people have, are going to think are kind of obvious, I suppose. But it took me a while to come to this, this point of view or, or to this, this realization because, yeah, I don't know, how, how old are you? I am 33. Okay, so you're you're quite a bit younger than I am. So I don't know if it was the same way for you growing up, but uh, I grew up in an era in which video games were not cool, right? And um, especially in the pre-console era. Uh, I mean, if you had a computer at all, you were a nerd. Uh, but if you <laughs> if you spent time, you know, playing a bunch of games when the rest of your friends, you know, were out playing uh, sports generally or or something else, then then you were really a nerd. So. I think a lot of the people who who grew up in that era came to think of playing games as a solitary experience. I used to, you know, play games like Ultima Four and wonder, you know, if there were other. I mean, I, I knew there must be other people playing them because you couldn't keep a company going otherwise. But I had never met any of them. They, uh, you know, and they didn't announce themselves. It wasn't something you really you really talked about uh, if you. If you did it, unless you happened to just fall into a circle of friends that, that that shared that interest, but then you were that geeky little you know AV club, and uh, and nobody else wanted anything to do with you, so th that's that's how I was exposed to, to computer gaming early on, and I don't know that it's ever become exactly mainstream, but it certainly has become mainstream enough now that you can you know watch a television show. And they can make, say, a joke about, uh, I don't know, Red, Red Dead Redemption. And a lot of people are going to get it who are watching the show. But it, it wasn't really like that at, at the time. So it, it, it took me a long time to even come around to the, the view that playing a game and then talking about your experience was something that would be worthwhile doing, that anybody would even uh, pay attention to, and that, you, and that you'd want to tell anybody else about, I suppose. Um, so when I started the blog or around that time, I was very ashamed isn't the right word to say, but I, I was, I thought it was a problem that I played as much, it played as many games as I did, that I spent as much time playing games as I did. Uh, I, th I thought it was an issue that I, I called myself the CRPG addict, not ironically I, at all. I, I really saw it as something of an addiction where I would play games when I felt that I should be doing other things uh, with my life. And I haven't really felt that way in a long time. And the reason I haven't felt that way is because of this conversation that my blog has, has generated uh, about each new game. and. Of course, that's the same conversation we have about all art, about books, about about film, about um, paintings, except none of those things had any kind of stigma about them 
that uh, that you've got to shake off before you can have that conversation. I don't think that anybody ever really felt that they were wasting their life on fine art. Uh, it's only about it's only low art, like you know, so-called low art, like video games that people have ever had had that concern about. And so it took me a long time to realize that I could even equate the two things. That I could I could I could hold up computer role-playing games alongside a film or alongside a book and say that it's this is equally worth talking about. And coming to that realization was an enormous part of my own. Uh, journey, even if I, I think that probably I only arrived at a place that a lot of people start at. Uh, so my answer has gotten so long at this point that I've forgotten the original question and I don't know if I've answered it. Yeah, you, but, uh, you uh, pretty okay. much. Yeah, uh, it was about uh, the importance of uh, engaging critically yeah. with, with art and video games specifically. I here. mean, certainly we have thousands of years of history of commentary, of critique on all kinds of art. So it's, it's something that's part of the, the worldwide cultural experience we have. There's no reason that video games shouldn't be an equal part of that. And I'm happy to be a part of, of that small piece of the criticism world, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, and it's really good that you have come to that realization eventually and because you don't want to be guilty doing doing something you're passionate about that's a horrible way to feel i'd like to think too that you know we're doing credit to the people who who spent a lot of time making these games i can't think of anything more depressing if i was an author or a painter or uh, a game developer than than having nobody talk about the things that i created Uh, and so I, i think that we we do honor to the people who uh, who make art by having these conversations. Yeah, when I was talking to Phil Salvador from the Obscuratory uh, for the previous interview, uh, we we'd spent quite a bit of time uh, discussing how a lot of the importance of talking about weird, obscure games is that they matter to someone, yeah. and and just the fact that it matters to someone means that it matters. Absolutely. I, and I always really enjoy it when, when I get a commenter who, you know, they'll, they'll often show up five years after I wrote about a game, but they'll have just found the article and, and they'll feel compelled to say, oh, my God, thank you so much. This was my my favorite game back when I was 13 years old. And that that's always a thrill when, when somebody does that, because it, it's true when you're when you really like something and you go to Google it and you find out that somebody has invested some time in it and, and written about it, then you, you feel a little thrilled to, to, to read uh, what that person has to say, assuming it's positive, I suppose. <laughs> Even if it's negative occasionally, <laughs> yeah. you might enjoy yeah. it. It might be funny to... As long as it's lovingly negative, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, that actually also ties into a, another thing that... Uh, I think I personally think it's important to do, which is to uh, not just shit on things, not say, yeah. "Oh, this is crap," but actually engage with it and and try to understand what they were trying to do, or, or look for something that is at least worthwhile in there. Yes, I, I agree. I and, and I I try to do that, and and I I'm generally satisfied with, with the fact that I don't I really ever use any invective against games or or call them names, or call the developers' names. I might have done that, uh, stumbled a couple of times early in my blogging career when I hadn't found my voice and I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. 
but uh, over the last at least eight years, I, I don't think I've ever, even a game that I didn't like, I usually try to find something positive to say about it or at least, you know, say that it, it could be fun under these circumstances or, or something like that. Sometimes it's a, it's a stretch, but uh, I, I certainly, you know, never stoop to the level of, of calling anybody names or the, or the game, you know, uh, using any obscenities or anything like that. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Hmm. How has your approach to writing this book changed over these past 10 years you've been doing it? Well, when I first started, I was just trying to document my own experience. Um, and I really didn't spend any time thinking about what I really wanted to accomplish. I, I just wrote as things occurred to me. And, um, you know, there's some good stuff in the in that first year or so. But uh, it gets a lot better, I think, w once I started regarding myself as a historian as much as a fan of the games. And I started doing much more external research uh, on each game, uh, basically trying to find anything that anybody else had ever written about it, uh, trying to contact the developers if I could find them. That Then it became a lot more fun for me, actually. And I think that the, the entries became a lot more interesting. And you start to see a lot more interconnectedness of mm -hmm. games um, once I started doing that additional research. There are some games in that early that first year that I, I'm a little embarrassed about the entries I wrote because I, I was clearly not aware of their obvious relationship to, to other titles or to their importance in the history of the genre. Dungeon Master is an easy one. I played it too early, uh, di didn't come to it with the right attitude, and didn't really understand how influential it was to a lot of subsequent games. And I, I would approach that entry completely, or that series of entries completely differently if I had to do it again. In fact, I'm, I think eventually I'll probably go back and, and play it again just for that that purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, so, seeing, a, yeah, getting a just having a more holistic view of the of the genre really improved my approach. I wouldn't say that I have like a standard way of of uh, starting each new game, but um, certainly, you know, I do some basic scanning uh, of Wikipedia and and Moby games to get a sense of what the just general scope of the title is. Then I'll search my, my own um, email correspondence, including my blog comments for anything that anybody's written uh, to me about it. You know, they might say that, Oh, I can't wait till you get to this game. And then they'll, they'll say a little thing about it because I like to have those in mind. And very often they'll warn me about stuff. Make sure you don't do this because it'll break the game. And so they might've told me that four years ago, but if I do my, my pregame search, I can be sure, be sure to find it. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, I just kind of play it fairly organically. But before the end, I do kind of have a checklist of things that I make sure that I have considered or have covered before I, f I wrap up my final entry. Mm. And has the way that you play the games changed as a result of uh, going through this whole I need to write about it process and, and trying to figure out how to be more interesting and stuff? You know, it's, it really hasn't, and that, that's kind of a surprising answer for me to give because I would have thought it would. But I, I, from the beginning until now, I just generally alternate an hour or two of playing with an hour or two of writing and, and see where that takes me. And I really need to think about doing a better job documenting. Sometimes I'll, I'll play for a couple hours, and then I can't get around to writing until two weeks later. And then I've forgotten 
what I was doing. I, all I have is screenshots <laughs> to remind me where where I was and, and and what I was doing, and maybe some some scribbled notes. I don't know why I don't just video everything that I do. You know, watch it as I write, and then and then dump it later. Or I should take a lot more. It's not like screenshots take up a lot of space or anything. I could take hundreds more than I do, and then you know just be more selective about what I put on the on the blog. But for some reason, I don't do those things. So I probably make it more difficult for myself than I need to. Mm. For for instance, if I record it while I was playing and then just narrated my notes to myself and to listen to later, that would probably be more efficient. I don't I don't know why I don't do that. Yeah, it would probably make things easier. And I'm surprised actually that I never when I I used to do these like game diary things, and I never thought to record myself either. I just took a copious number of screenshots and uh, and then tried to. Uh, go through the screenshots sequentially as I'm writing the story and, and from that recreate the experience in my head. I think it's just hard for people of my age to shake off the, uh, the idea that hard drive space is precious. <laughs> you know, and, so, and so there's a part of me that's screaming two hours of vi- voice recording. That's going to be like 300 megabytes. That's going to be half your hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The good old days where, uh, you had a, a couple of megabytes hard drive yeah, or, exactly. or maybe 20 meg. I remember how exciting it was when we got a, a new Macintosh that had a 100 megabyte hard drive. I, I remember that too, yeah. So you mentioned just before about uh, how you've uh, increasingly done some research and tried to connect with developers. What are, the, what are some of the most interesting things that you've learned from these correspondences? I suppose there, the influences are always interesting to hear from developers because I often make guesses that turn out to be wrong. Uh, I'll say I'm, I'm pretty sure the developer has played this game or you know, been exposed to this one, and they they say no, that wasn't that. It was it was this instead. Uh, that uh, that always surprises me. It it always surprises me when I um. When, you know, when I think I have a, a pretty good theory about, say, the, the cultural background or uh, some other, you know, um, influence from a developer and they, they sent me straight. For instance, I played a, um, a game, uh, what was it called? It was a 1990, 1990 game by three brothers who were of uh, Indian heritage, uh, India Indian heritage, and when I played, I, th- I thought, oh, well, this, you know, they clearly were, were dealing with their migration to a different country uh, in this particular plot point. And then when I talked to the person, it, it, he, the developer, he turned out, no, they were already, had been living here for years and it had nothing to do with that. So uh, very often, you know, they challenge, or um, they, they challenge my own abilities, I suppose, to, uh, to extrapolate from the game uh, what the developer must have, have been thinking. Uh, there have been quite a few times that I, I've spoken to developers and I've ended up with complete mysteries in my hand about how uh, about the relationship between games and and what came first. Um, there are I didn't I never spoke to him, but uh, you, you can read uh, interviews uh, for Daniel Lawrence, for instance, who uh, you know insists that he was not influenced by the Plato D and D in the development of Telengard, and and yet. Uh, that's something that I never would have guessed if having played both his games and, and the D and D games, um, I've, there was a, a pair of games that 
came out uh, that I reviewed recently, uh, Caverns of Mordia and um, The Devil's Dungeon, that were all, both from the late 1970s. And I thought the directionality of it was absolutely clear, but I, I spoke to the developer, uh, who was Australian, incidentally, uh, of the uh, the second game, and he insists, no, he, he came up with it from scratch and had no uh, prior, uh, prior knowledge of the other uh, title. I, I was telling him about it for the first time. So it's it's those sort of little history mysteries that that come up very often uh when i when i speak to developers i i don't really enjoy the interview process i'm not a, an interviewer i'm not a you know a, a journalist i would rather they just show up on my blog and comment and so i really love it when they do that and Corey cole for instance has been a fantastic uh a commenter, uh, not only on the games that he was involved in, he, he, he and his wife wrote the Quest for Glory series, mm. um, but he's also commented on a lot of other games. And, and I, you know, I've never actually sat down and interviewed him one-on-one, -on -one, and I don't need to, because he'll he'll come after I write and, and tell me what I got wrong and what I got right and answer my questions. Robert Clardy, uh, de developer of, um, who founded Synergistic Software, also uh, came on uh, to his games and offered a lot of additional context and and interpretation, and and that's always more meaningful to me because then you get their own words right there uh, in the blog. Mm. Yeah, anyone who uh, who bothers to scroll through the comments, which on CRPG addict you absolutely should do, uh, <laughs> yeah. will will learn all sorts of interesting things. Oh yeah, anybody who just reads the articles and doesn't read the comments is only getting only getting half of it. But I, you know, I'm not a, like I say, I'm not a great journalist, and I speak to a lot of developers who act like they don't really even want to talk about uh, the, these games after so much time. Or I think maybe they go on and they see my Gimlet score, and again, we talked about that. You know, they don't understand how to interpret it, and so they get offended and and then don't give me much information. Uh, so it's much, like I say, it's much easier when they can just read everything I've written. And then respond point by point to the particular things. I just don't get a lot who are, I guess, that interested. Hmm. And then um, there was a case, uh, was it last year or, or earlier this year, with uh, Crystalware, uh, oh yeah. which is kind of an interesting one uh, and very strange. I, you, you discovered yeah, some, a, some odd things there uh, through yeah, your correspondence. It's a strange company. Uh, you know, it, I was completely in the dark about them until uh, uh, one of my commenters uh, came on and said, you know, here's a, this is a company you've never blogged about, but they released a ton of uh, role-playing games, and, and they, there was like literally like a dozen of them. Uh, but they'd escaped cataloging on Moby Games, and they'd escaped a Wikipedia entry, and, and so I never had, had heard about them. And so I started looking into their games, and they weren't very much... Uh, uh, role-playing games they were they were more sort of adventure games with a role-playing interface i suppose would be a good way to say it mm. but yeah it, it led me to to research the company a bit i i still don't have I, I wrote an entry about the company but i wish i could have had some more sources uh, i tried to reach out to quite a few more people than i was able to actually talk to including uh the the owner of the company john bell who is alive, and, and, and I, I found him, but I wasn't able to, he didn't return my messages, so I wasn't able to include him in the uh, the interview. It, it was a very interesting company, uh, just in, enormously ambitious, I think, in what they, uh, John Bell in particular, and what he wanted to achieve. Uh, he had just 
his eyes in the sky for uh, for the future. And I don't think he was aware that he was churning out um, pulp, you know, piece of pulp after piece of pulp, basically. Uh, and so I've often I've often compared such developers to Ed Wood. Uh, Tim Burton's movie Ed Wood is one one of my favorites, and if you watch it, you, you get a sense of a of a director who's just so in love with the idea of movies and with the, the process of making movies. He doesn't even realize that he, he he's not any good at it. He doesn't realize that his own <laughs> movies are, are junk. He'll film something and loves it immediately and doesn't even want to do a second take. You know, and uh, and I feel like there's occasionally I run into a, a role playing game developer who's kind of like that who just who keeps spinning out one game after another and clearly loves the process, uh, but doesn't seem to care that uh, the games aren't getting good reviews or uh, even being played at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. But I, you know, you mentioned, I can't remember what word you used in in the email you sent me, but it's, it was a perfectly legitimate company. And the, um, the the two developers that I talked to who had worked for them didn't have anything negative to say about the, um, uh, you know their experience. They'd they'd gotten paid well and uh, and and on time. Uh, I just think that um, the owner sort of overdid it and and tried to take on too much, and it, it just led to the whole house of cards falling down eventually. Mm. It, it sounded from your your blog entry like uh, they engaged in some slightly shady business practices, but but they had like their heart in the right place or something like that. Kind of. I think he just um, uh, just over leveraged himself, basically a, a little bit. I I don't think he he set out to you know um, to screw anybody or anything. He just um, he he had his eyes were bigger than his stomach, basically, and uh, and ultimately he couldn't sustain all of the different uh, balls that he had in the air. I suppose. Hmm. What a mixed metaphor, though. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the other thing that, that you've increasingly done, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit, uh, as you've done more and more research into the games, is connecting the, the through lines uh, in, yeah. in their history and how these games influence each, each other and uh, you know, like that whole wizardry line and stuff you, you talked about. And I, I'm curious what, whether there are like any innovations that, that you've you've found through doing this process or like anything that's surprised you about uh how one thing led to another um nothing surprised me i mean i always get a bit of a thrill when i find a connection that i don't think um anybody else has or i haven't seen uh written anywhere uh for instance um the enormously long German game, uh, Fate Gates of Dawn, is uh, is entirely based upon alternate reality, and I, nobody had ever said that to my knowledge before um, I fired it up. And well, you know, within ten minutes, I thought, oh, "This is this is clearly he, he he's using an alternate reality base here," and he did it better you know, than than alternate reality. He didn't just um, uh, plagiarize or anything. Uh, same with Disciples of Steel. You know, when I when I fired that up, I, I mean, I could see Im- immediately from the skills and the way to approach combat, combat that it was basing itself upon um, Wizard's Crown. And when I when I have that when I make that connection, and I don't see it in the Wikipedia article or in anything else that's been written about the game, I always get a bit of a thrill that I can be the first one to 
to announce it to to, to make that that particular connection. And uh, there's been a couple of times that uh, we talked we talked about the Plato series that I've identified games that that clearly owe themselves uh, that are direct adaptations of of something that was on Plato. And it's clear that somebody who went to that university. Uh, engaged with the game, graduated, moved to another place, started a company, and figured nobody is going to know that this you know piece of commercial software I'm writing owes itself to this educational system that the public can't access at the at the time. And so it was always, it was fun to make those those connections. Just recently, there was a game called uh, Orb Quest that I reviewed that was directly descended from the Plato. Um, D and D, so I, I always enjoy that. You know, just it's it's like being a sleuth, I suppose, and <laughs> and find you know putting together a mystery, finding the two people who uh, you previously you thought were didn't know each other actually have some sort of uh, association. And for the uh, I you know I've been on and off working on a book about my endeavors here, and I was going to put together this sort of massive family tree as a um, uh, as one of the. Uh, um, features uh for for the the book so i i really enjoy that process and i really enjoy it when i can look at a game and say wow this one has just come out of nowhere there's just no uh prior lineage that explains the emergence uh, of this particular title that's always a a fun thing to be able to say too Hmm. i i imagine that the the computer role-playing game family tree uh even by 1992 would have been uh, very complicated and and extensive with its branches and and interconnections. You know, it's not. I don't know. It's not as much as you might think, though. I I, I think there's still you have the the Ultima series, and then you have the Wizardry derivatives, and they branch off quite quickly into the um, uh, into Might and Magic, and and then Bard's Tale uh, influenced games, uh, and then you've got Dungeon Master branching off of that in all of its. Uh, um, derivatives, uh, and then the SSI uh, titles that are based heavily upon its its wargaming history. So th- those those branches that I just mentioned account for at least half of what you see mm. uh, going in, into the 1990s. It's extremely rare. It, it was a lot more common back in the early 80s and the late 70s to find a game that was just starkly original. Um, there was this sort of period between 1978 and, say, 83, in which the, the RPG genre hadn't really established itself yet. It could have gone anywhere. And so all kinds of weird titles, especially for the Apple II, are popping up that have these, that are sort of evolutionary dead ends, you know, that um, that have these features that just that didn't go anywhere, that no, nobody else ever, ever builds upon. But it's pretty well established by the, the late 1980s, and it's very rare uh, to find a a completely original approach to uh, to, to an RPG, which is, of course it's always you know fun when when that happens and it turns out to be a groundbreaker, like say Ultima Underworld. Hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting. Uh, it make, gets me thinking about how uh, what tends to happen with new genres and and new platforms as well, uh, like when uh, the iPhone came out as you have this flurry of activity and excitement and people come up with lots and lots of different ideas, some are derivative, but a lot of them are original. And then uh, they start to figure out what works and what doesn't work and, and everything influences everything else. 
I mean, you, you take a game like today, like uh, I, I've been playing The Witcher 3 lately. I, I, I came into that fairly late. Everybody knew how good it was. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I'm stuck in the past on my blog, so I, I don't get into a lot of modern games. But uh, I started playing it a, a few weeks ago. But you, you just you can step it back. The, it, it's heavily influenced by uh, the early uh, Aurora Engine games, including Neverwinter Nights, which took a lot of influence from the Infinity Engine games, which go back to the Gold Box games which go back to the early SSI titles. Within five steps, you're back at Wizard's Crown. Uh, and uh, then that's, you know, 30 years of history right there. And and you can do that with, with almost every title released, even today. <laughs> it's like the, the video game version of, uh, was it Six Degrees of Separation? Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's much yeah, a lot like that. <laughs> uh, and... Have you uh, garnered many uh, game design or game development insights through writing and researching your blog? Well, people are always encouraging me about about that sort of thing. You know, they think that, that I'd, I'd make a good game developer, and that's that's I guess still the big black, the big dark area for me. I don't know what goes into actually making a game. I'm not a programmer, hmm. and so I can't take my ideas and turn them into something that people could actually play. But I understand there's lots of people who aren't programmers that that work in game design that, you know, do world building and dialogue. And I, I think I'd be relatively good at that. And I actually have some, some ideas uh, for role-playing games. I, I wrote about one about three years ago that I still think would make a really good game if anybody ever took it and developed it, but I'm waiting for the call, you know, <laughs> I mean, if, <laughs> if Bioware or, or Bethesda ever want to give me a, a ring and, and, and get me as a consultant, I'd be happy to do what I can. But it's not something that I've been eager to proactively uh, go out and try. I'm, I'm busy enough with my real job. Mm. Yeah, it, it would be very valuable one day if for you if you could uh, try your hand at some game making. Yeah. Just because it, it's this extra perspective on how games are made and how they work under the hood. It, it, it does reframe your thinking a little bit when you do it. I'd certainly like to... I, I'd like the challenge of being able to refute what a lot of people tell me. So, you know, I'll say something on my blog, like, well, I wish the game had done this. And, and then a commenter will come along and say, well, here's the technical reason why they couldn't do that. And it never, it never convinces me. I always think that there must have been some way. And of course, now we're in an era in which there are no obstacles really to, you know, to the things that used to plague people in the past storage space and memory and, and, and all that. So, um, you know, people. I'm always complaining. For instance, that there aren't enough dependencies in, in games. That you know, you do something, and it ought to have some resonance across the the game world. And then people tell me, you know, you can't possibly do that because then it would it would multiply, and you'd have to have all these different possible combinations. Well, I still think it's it's possible to work it out. And I'd like to I'd like the challenge of trying and and not just being told that it's not possible. Well. One of the problems that, that you can run into is like uh, just the the amount of processing that's required uh, might be more than uh, you can handle. It, it might be that your the the CPU you're targeting isn't powerful enough, but more likely it's going to be something like a, you need to do this processing in real time because it's a graphical game and yeah. you can't wait a minute for all the the stuff to get uh, cycled through as it, it goes through these decision trees and dependencies to figure things out. And that's why Dwarf Fortress 
looks the way it does uh, and and why that's so immensely uh hard to uh get your head around in the beginning it's it's because it's it's doing that it's so complicated it's got so many layers to it and it's fascinating but that's one i haven't gotten into yet so i have to i still have that one to look forward to uh, <laughs> tarn adams has been a commenter on my blog he actually he actually finished one of the games that i i abandoned and and wrote me about it so i i've owed him a a look at dwarf fortress for a long time well he and his brother uh, they started making games in in basic uh, yeah. in the 1980s i think I, I i talked to them about it at one point um for a Polygon article about games that developers made when they were kids. And, and some of the stuff they made was like role-playing games uh, in, yeah. written in basic and, and kind of weird. <laughs> probably, probably would have been decent stuff if they'd released it. Yeah. I don't, don't really remember much about the conversation, but they had preserved some of the stuff that they'd made. Uh, I remember they told me something about something getting corrupted and uh, two games morphed into one because of a weird file corruption okay that is that would be a strange one here <laughs> yeah it would have been a very weird game <laughs> now so in your blog you are i've mentioned this a couple of times you're in 1992 at the moment yeah uh, what have you got coming up that you're looking forward to i think the last major game that i'm looking forward to in 492 is um, probably the Might and Magic 4-5 um, pair, which straddle the 1992-1993 line. Uh, but that isn't to say there aren't other good ones uh, that, that I'll discover. I just th- This is a, a very dark era for me. I, uh, I, I, my computer is broke, basically, around, around <laughs> 1990, 1991, and I went to college, and I got a girlfriend, and got my first job and, and there was a long a period of the 1990s in which i didn't really play games uh and, and really only got in back into them to in the late and the end of the year uh, i went backwards at that point and picked up the series that i had liked when i was a kid the ultima series might and magic and so forth but i had i you know, there's still a ton of stuff that is just a big question mark for me so I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to the best of the games in in the mid-1990s that I haven't been exposed to. I did announce a sort of a change uh, about two months ago on my blog that, where, where I said that I'm going to start allowing myself to creep forward a bit. Because 1992 and 1993 both have like 60, 70 games each, and if it, I'll never just, I'll never get out of the, the that pair of years if, if I don't allow myself to, to move forward a little bit. So, I haven't really established a hard and firm rule about how I'm going to do that. I think, you know, I'm going to force myself to play a certain number of games from each year before I can move on to the next one, say 10 or something. And even then, my central tendency will still remain in the earliest year that I haven't uh, finished. Uh, But I want to be able to to move forward. I want to be able to cover uh, Fallout, Baldur's Gate, uh, some of the great stuff from the late 1990s. And if I don't do it now, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not in danger of dying anytime soon, I suppose. <laughs> but I mean, who knows how long a blogging is going to be a thing, right? I mean, you know, uh, Google can announce at any time they're going to deprecate Blogspot, and then uh, I'll have to think about migrating everything. I don't know. I I might be worrying about stuff that isn't worth worrying about, but this seems to be the 
I get a lot of readers. I get a good a good Patreon uh, subscription going. I, I should strike while the iron is hot and and cover games that I really am excited about covering while I while I have all these people to enjoy and um, and I'm still able to do it. Hmm. Yeah, and it'll be uh, it'll be nifty, I guess, for uh, especially for fans of the genre, but I think for anyone uh, to see you uh, working your way through some of the the big critical games like Fallout uh, and, and seeing them with fresh eyes. And yeah, there's that, and I've never, and I, I'm really eager too because I've never played the the first two Fallout's, so uh, I've only got experience with the last uh, three, and. I uh, that's not unusual for me. Usually, I ins- I insist that I play the earlier games before the latter ones. So, uh, I'm excited about that myself. Uh, I do hasten to add, though, that I have a lot of readers who really prefer when I cover the obscure stuff, mm. and so and I, I, it's a balance that I'm I'm trying to strike with this new new policy. But we'll see how it goes. Mm. It's the obscure stuff is full of like weird, interesting stuff, and and yes, and and I personally like to dig into obscure stuff in a lot of my research because there are so many uh, like evolutionary dead ends and, and alternate pathways that could have we could have taken if if that game had actually been popular. Yes, I I agree, and I, I feel like the the I don't know that's that's probably gonna. There's going to be less of that going forward, right? I mean, the in the post-internet age, um, it would be fairly hard for an authentically good game not to have gotten some sort of notice and and have a community of people talking about it and uh, have at least you know built up over time. Uh, a, a body of people who were playing it and say positive things about it. It's easy for a 1980s game, given the way things were distributed back then, to have gone completely unheralded. Um, but I think we're going to see less and less of that as I go forward. Hmm. Well, the challenge nowadays is is discoverability. It's like how if you make something good, then uh, how do you ensure that people do encounter it and and there will be some games that fall through the cracks where that they made a great game, but they don't figure out how to actually tell enough people about it that it that it develops a cult following. Well, I guess I hope I, I hope that's true, <laughs> and th- that'll be nice if that continues to be the case throughout into the two thousands. So, well, what do you think the future holds for the CRPG addict? Uh, like, are you going to be doing this in another ten years' time if if Blogspot is still working? <laughs> I don't. I don't see why not. I, um, you know, my life has gone through an enormous amount of upheaval in in the last uh, ten years. So things that I I talked about on my blog sometimes, uh, other times didn't to maintain some sort of privacy. But you know, I, I've gone through a few not career changes exactly, but definitely job changes. I went from regular employment to self-employment back to regular employment in a, in a sort of different uh, area of my field. Uh, my house was destroyed by a really bad winter we had in New England back in 2005, and I, I tried to have it fixed, and that didn't work, so we ended up having to sell and move, and I moved like five times. Uh, and I, I maintained the blog through all of that. I maintained it through this period of self-employment when I was on the road over 200 nights a year uh, between 1991 and uh, 1991, 2011 
and uh, and and just last year. Uh, and now I have a stable job, and I'm uh, I have a stable house, and so I can't imagine anything that's going to cause me to give it up in the f- near future if I was able to stick with it over the last decade. Hmm. So I, I think actually my my readers will see uh, more regularity uh, in in my blog over the next few years, as I because I have a, a more stable schedule uh, these days, and uh, I yeah I don't see any reason why it won't still be going in twenty thirty. Do do you see any endpoint at some point in the future? Because I mean you'll never catch up, you'll never no. get through everything. No, I mean, I'll just you know keep at it, and then one, one day the void will take me. But no, <laughs> you know, this is I, I have taken a hobby and I've expanded on it and turned it into a sort of a second hobby, blogging, uh, along with gaming. I don't. It, it's it's been part of my life for forty years now. I can't uh, imagine why it wouldn't still continue to be a part of my life for the rest of it. Hmm. Yeah. Indeed. Cool. Now, before we uh, before we finish things up, uh, is there anything that you wanted to add? Any any stuff we didn't cover that you'd love to talk about? Well, I'd like to ask you a question. I don't yeah. know if you want to make this part of your sh- uh, show or not, but I, I'd, your perspective would be interesting. There aren't very many Australian RPGs. Um, a couple of shareware ones that I've covered, and um, one called Citadel of Vras, I think that I played that was a, a 1992 game, but re- I mean, really, you can count them on on one hand. I, I was wondering if you, you you have any insight as to why, and I don't know if this is true of game development in general or just RPG development. Why nothing ever really seemed to t- take off from Australian developers? I, I'm not really sure. Um, on the, I can tell or, you that. Or uh, I should I should offer an, al- an alternative possibility, maybe. There's a very active development market going on, and it, it's just not being cataloged, and, and we're not, and I'm not seeing it. Well, I know that there were a number of things made on uh, an Australian uh, computer, an Australian personal computer. Uh, that I, I don't know much about what stuff was on there, but there's been uh, a project called Played Again uh, that has made great efforts to document all the amateur games made in Australia. And there's probably a whole lot of RPGs included in that. Okay. Um, But on the commercial side, it's probably just the way things have have gone with the industry. Um, You mentioned the developer called Silver Lightning, and then there was another one called, I think, Infinite Interactive. And uh, between the two of them, they're responsible for like, 90% 90% of Australian RPGs, and that's not a very long list. Yeah, so Infinite Interactive, that's um, Steve Faulkner's company, and uh, he is famous for the Puzzle Quest games. Yeah. Uh, but also for uh, a computer strategy game called Warlords, uh, not to be confused with the arcade games, the same name. Uh, and uh, no, that. Oh, uh, right. But you're. T- Talking about the Warlords series, that uh, the it, there's like five or something in the yeah yeah that was that was him he he really? created that yeah I didn't know that those were of Australian provenance 
Yeah, Warlord, okay. the Warlord series, uh, the Warlord's Battlecry spin-off. That yeah, was also okay, yeah. him. Um, oh, I, I spent an awful lot of time with those. Even though I'm not normally much of a um, a strategy game player, I always had a fondness for Warlords 2 or 3 in particular. I think 3 was the one I, I spent just an incredible amount of time playing. I didn't know those were Australian. I, so there's a there's yet another possibility. I have them mistagged in my, uh, my, my list that... A number of titles that probably should be Australian. It, it could be. So the the other big companies of the early days, um, there was a SSG strategic strategic studies group. Yeah, I think I is guess. the name. Yeah, uh, they they were mostly strategy games. Uh, quite and that's hardcore an Australian company, huh? strategy games. Yeah, they're from Sydney. Uh, Steve Faulkner's from Melbourne. Oh boy, you're going to want to kill me. I've had those. <laughs> I've had those tagged as US games for. On my master list for I don't know years, nobody's ever corrected me on it. It, uh, it could be that some of the developers they worked with were American. I'm not sure. I don't know a huge amount about their history, but I know they started in the 1980s in Sydney. Okay. And um, then there's a Melbourne house. Uh, they were like Australian and British, uh, founded in Australia. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they ever did any role-playing games. The The Hobbit was their big influential early game, but that was an adventure. Yeah, I, th- I don't have any on my uh, my master list from Melbourne House. Yeah. So and, they, but, but primarily adventure games. It, it's yeah. interesting to see how it's it's gone by country. You know, the the um, France had a sort of a period of the, the late 1980s in which there was a blossoming of titles, uh, and then they they were all gone by the, the early 1990s and they, they just mostly ported games created in other countries. And then uh, the UK, uh, it's been very similar. They, they had a lot in the eighties and, and early nineties. And then, and then basically the UK developers seem to have dried up after that. But of course, you know, you, you reach a, a, pr- a point in the history, I suppose, where it's really hard to pin a particular, to name a particular country as the provenance because these companies are now just international anyway. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there'd be a, a number of Australian-made RPGs that uh, we're just not thinking of, or we're not realizing yeah. are Australian. Or, uh, yeah, that I have the US <laughs> games in my, in my list. You know, fortunately, as I come to each one, I investigated it more thoroughly, so that, w- that would have been corrected eventually. But, but <laughs> yeah. I, thank you for, for filling me in on that. One of the things that uh, Australian developers have done very well is making their games for an international audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just always been the the case that we have a very small market here. The population's only twenty five million now, and uh, twenty thirty years ago it was a lot smaller. Sure. And so you don't have the market really to sustain uh, you in a place that has a fairly high cost of living. And so we got very very good at making games for Americans and for British people, and and to the point where. There was almost no original development in Australia from about the mid-90s until the uh, global financial crisis destroyed our industry and it turned oh. into a, a just entirely indie industry. Very interesting. I'll have to, I, I might do a, you know, I've never, I've, I kept, um, I, I've often thought about doing special articles about the RPG development, but in particular countries. Usually I talk about a country as it comes up in a particular game. Uh, but I've never really done one, you know, so just surveying the RPG history of, of Australia or France or any particular country. But uh, that'd be an interesting thing to add to my blog sometime. 
Yeah, I mean, I would like to read it. As, as a historian, I'd find it really interesting to see if there's a, a particular character to a country's games or whether they're just uh, taking all their cues from what's happening internationally. Yeah. No, that is really, really interesting. Like the Australian games that I've played so far, you really wouldn't have been able to tell that they had been developed outside of any other English speaking country. But boy, does France have a unique approach to its <laughs> its games. Uh, yeah, that'd be a, that'd probably be the country I start with because they're the one that has such a stark national character in their in their RPGs. My thanks again to Chet for sharing his stories and insights about the wonderful world of computer role-playing games. You can read his writing and follow along on his never-ending quest to play through every CRPG ever made at crpgaddict.blogspot.com. I'll have links to his entries on many of the games we spoke about in this interview in the show notes. As a reminder, this interview is part of a new series I'm running alongside the usual documentary narrative style sort of stuff. I've also run interviews with the individuals behind Schmapplations and The Obscuratory, as well as the author of a book on the history of the Dutch games industry. And I have lots more planned for the future. If you have suggestions or requests for people you'd like to hear me talk to, hit me up on Twitter at LifeAndTimesVG or via email on Richard at LifeAndTimes.games. And as always, remember that you can support my work through paypal.me slash mossrc or patreon.com slash life and times of video games. I'll have a new interview out later this month where you'll hear about obscure Japanese games history, retro game retailing, and the Video Game History Foundation with Kelsey Lewin. And I'm aiming to have the first episode for season four of the main show out in June too. So stay tuned. Lots of cool stuff coming.